Welcome to our five o'clock service. Uh, good to see you here. We are uh, looking at the topic this month, and we're going to also go into next month of um, revival. And especially, uh, we're going to be focusing on some of the great revivals that took place in the history of our nation. On the seven o'clock service, uh, that's where we normally focus on believing God for a touch of Holy Spirit fire whether that be through the gifts of the Spirit as the Holy Spirit leads, praying for people to be healed or to be saved, but also believing God at the 7 o'clock service for some, God to do something, a personal reviving on the inside of our lives. But what we're doing here at the 5 o'clock is we are saying that God has done this before, that despite everything that you might see in uh, the nation today or in the world today, where you see Christians being persecuted and people not attending church like they used to and an anti-Christian sentiment. And sometimes people can get a little bit depressed about that. Christians can sort of batten up the hatches and think, oh, you know, let, let's just hide. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. But when we look at history and see what God has done before, it gives us hope because what God did before, he can do again. We also find that during times of great reviving works of God, they usually come after a time of great darkness. As the darkness gets darker spiritually, often God will light a fresh flame or a fresh fire in the hearts of his people and turn things around. So the history of revival is not just for historians, uh, but it is for us today. It's what God did to our spiritual ancestors. That's who they were, our spiritual ancestors. And so we looked um, a couple of weeks ago at the early move of God amongst some of the so-called saints, St. Aidan, St. Columbus, up there in northern Britain and Scotland, where these fiery monks uh, went on missions to Ireland and then from Ireland. Ireland was touched by the Holy Spirit and then from Ireland back into the north of England, uh, preaching the gospel, signs and wonders, uh, and, 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 and that was very exciting. All of these that I'm looking at in the coming weeks can be found in my book called Land of Hope and Glory, British Revivals Through the Ages. Each chapter is a different move of God that took place in Britain uh, right from the Dark Ages right through to last century in the Hebridean Revival. They're only a chapter long because it's meant to give people a taste of these events and what, what happened. Um, you know, sometimes I, the reason I wrote this book is because at the time I found that on the bookshelves you would either get tiny little pamphlets about a revival that didn't really tell you anything, or you'd get books this thick written in the 1800s where you'd have to wade through to find anything of real value. So this book just gives you a snapshot, a feel, and should you, you think that some of the revivals or the movements that you hear about, like the Methodists or the Primitive Methodists or the Salvation Army, should you think, wow, I'm really interested in this, well, you can go out and get further books and study them. And uh, it's, it's a helpful book because it will give you courage in your personal life and also encourage you that things can change. That's what revival's about. Things can change in your life. Things can change in your family's life. 
your city's life, your nation's life. God is a God of revival. He pours out his spirit. That's what he did at the beginning of church history. It was a revival. He poured out his spirit. And we looked at the book of Acts, um, chapter 4, last week. And it's only priced three pounds. So um, uh, you can get hold of these because I did it 10 years ago. We got a big bulk of them. So that might be a follow-up for some of you that are interested in this. Well, today we are going to go into the 1300s, and and we are going to look particularly at a man and the movement that came out of him, and his name was John Wycliffe, and I've called him the Bible man, and the reason I've called him the Bible man is because he was the first man to translate the Bible from Latin stroke Greek into the English language, Uh, but he did a lot more than just translate the Bible into the English language so that Anybody that could read could could read it in their own language. He also started a great movement that was 200 years or so before the Reformation with Martin Luther and all that happened. So this is one of the earliest strong biblical moves of God in our nation. We looked at those monks and Aidan and the rest in the Middle Ages, in the 500s, and um, we said, although they were on fire with God, they didn't have the greatest Bible knowledge or scripture or doctrinal understanding. But because their hearts were on fire with God, they moved forward. In fact, a very famous poet, um, Alfred Lord Tennyson, he, uh, he wrote a verse about John Wycliffe, the Bible man. I think it's there behind me. And uh, he said this about John Wycliffe. Not least are thou, thou little Bethlehem in Judah, for in thee the Lord was born. Nor thou in Britain, little Lutterworth, least for in thee the word was born again. This is an important quote because here uh, Lord Tennyson is talking about how in a little place called Bethlehem, as you know, Jesus was born. And out of that little place would come great salvation that would touch the nation and the world. And he's comparing Bethlehem to uh, a little place called Lutterworth. If you ever travel up the M1, anybody ever drive up the M1 in their car? Well, make a note when you get to Junction 20. Because Junction 20 of the M1, that's where Lutterworth is. And that was the place where not only did John Wycliffe translate the Bible into the English, but that's where he trained preachers, common preachers, to go out up and down England to preach the gospel and and to cause a great move of God to take place there. It's a lovely place to visit because there's so much of John Wycliffe that, that was there. Now, we often talk about the great reformation under Martin Luther, In the early 1500s, that's almost 200 years after the time that we're looking at today. And how with the revelation rediscovered in the Bible of that the just are righteous by faith alone, uh, the reformers got back to the Bible, back to the Bible teaching uh, and, and wanted to cleanse the church of all the terrible superstition and false doctrine and lack of understanding of the scriptures that was in Europe of that time. But what many people don't realize is that 200 years before that, in the 1300s, this man called John Wycliffe took Great Britain by storm and, and had his own reformation, if I can use that word a little bit, 
uh, early. Uh, he's known as the father of the English Reformation. He's been called the morning star or the rising star, or the, sorry, the morning star or the rising sun of the Reformation. So what's incredible about what you're going to hear about him is that he was doing this 200 years before the Reformation. In fact, many of the Reformation, the Reformers, were influenced. These are the seeds of things that would come. We'd also see later on people like John Huss, who were very strong on the Word of God, and he was martyred. And so it's funny how what God can do something in one century, and it can be seeds that can be planted, that can influence others in centuries to come. That's why it's important to study revival history and the history of the church. That's why it's important, not for everybody, but for those of us certainly that are aspiring to ministry in the public preaching of God's word, you need to read the great preachers and teachers throughout church history. Uh, if, If you're a regular preacher and you've never read Augustine, then shame on you. If you're a regular preacher and you never looked at the works or the life of Jonathan Edwards, then shame on you. If you've never looked at these great men and these great works that impacted history and you want want to preach the gospel, then you will be impoverished uh, instead of being enriched in your understanding because God works through the generations. It's not just while we're alive, but what we are enjoying is a product of those that came before us. Isn't that right? I mean, for example, we are celebrating this year the centenary celebrations of the birth of the Elam Pentecostal movement of which we are part of, a hundred years to the year when the evangelist George Jeffries, who was also the founder of this church, Kensington Temple, got together with a group of men and women and pledged to reach Britain and Ireland for the gospel. And we are reaping the benefits of that generation a hundred years ago. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here today. And so God works through the generations as an unbroken line of the Holy Spirit. And so even when history changes, even when um, a nation or a culture seems to be backsliding, and we think, oh, it's all over. Don't say it's all over. Because God is not just looking at one generation. But whether a generation has turned to God or not turned to God yet, God is using it in his history. And so the morning star, the rising sun, John John Wycliffe. And um, in his book on John Wycliffe, The Dawn of Reformation, David Fountain says this, that Wycliffe was to change the course of English history perhaps more than any other single person. That's a pretty powerful claim about this man. Well, John Wycliffe was born around 1324. Uh, He was a Yorkshireman, and he was born into what we might call Chaucer's England. Have you ever ever heard of Chaucer, the the famous poet? You might have heard of of such writings as the Canterbury Tales. And um, there's a picture, the Canterbury Tales is all about people on pilgrimage to Canterbury. Of course, the, uh, the chief... Bishop of the Church of England is always the Archbishop of Canterbury, and right there in the 1300s, it, it, was, a, it was the major place for devotion. There were other places as well. And so, because in those days, things was, uh, Britain was steeped in religiosity and 
superstition, uh, as we'll see, that people would, part of people's life was to, was to be paying for their sins. And the church was everywhere and dominating not just congregational life, but the church and the Pope, as we'll see, were even dominating political life. It was in this century, the 1300s, that the Pope was even described as our Lord God the Pope. Because he was seen so much as God's vicar on earth. You know what the word vicar means when we, when we talk about Anglican vicars? That word vicar, well they don't mean it by this, but the word vicar simply means in the place of. And so the Pope, the pope has always been known as the vicar of Christ. Which his title means that he on earth is in place of Christ. That's why theologically, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, he has the power to forgive sins and the power not to forgive sins. He has the power to make infallible judgments. And so vast amounts of money from the church went directly to the Pope in Rome. And uh, anyone who complained, whether prince or poor, was liable to excommunication. And if the Pope excommunicated you, that was it. You couldn't go down your local Elim church and say, oh, I've come to jo- where you are, I've just been excommunicated. No, you're out. The, uh, you, you were excommunicated. It meant that you were, according to the teaching of the day, that you were not going to heaven. It was a time of superstition and biblical ig- ignorance. Priests and monks would uh, go around raising money and doing rituals and regulations and false doctrines of penance where you could get pardon for sin, like, like we see uh, here. If you, if you would go on a... Um, oh, it's gone. Um, just leave the slide up till the next one. Um, if, you would, if you were to go to Canterbury, you would get your sins forgiven. And, and, and if you were at Canterbury, there was certain money you could do and certain acts you could do. And, and that would have your sins forgiven. And this was now a, a powerful merchandising trade. And the, pe- the, the people in Britain didn't know any better. Why? Because they didn't have their pocket NIV, New Testament, to read and find out. They were locked out from the scriptures. Of course, not many of them could read, but not, not even those that, that, that could read in English would read in English. Most things were in Latin. And, um, and, and even... even Latin Bibles were not freely available. It was considered a dangerous thing for somebody that wasn't educated in the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church to read a Bible. Why? It was seen that if they would read a Bible, they would read it wrongly without the instruction from the mother church and they would misinterpret things and and get into heresy. So it was believed the safest thing was to keep the Bible away from untrained priests and, uh, and they would just do what they were told to do. You could, you, you, it, it, it was, as I said, a money-making game. And uh, travelling friars. And monks used to travel from village to village telling stories. And they would have these amazing stories, not, not just from the Bible, but these amazing stories of torments in hell and what would happen to people if they didn't if they weren't obedient and generous to the church and um, no, nobody could challenge them it seemed because nobody knew anything everybody was afraid that to attack or criticize the church was to criticize god himself well in into this chaucer's england john wickliffe was was born and he grew up in yorkshire and it was a very clever clever boy, and he was sent to Oxford University 
1340, and there he began to come in contact with the Word of God. But although in those days as a student he began to read the Word of God, it didn't have a dramatic impact on him. I think it was slowly working in him, but he was so steeped into the conditions of his time that it would, it, it would take a flash of revelation like it did for Luther for him to break out. And I think there's a lesson here. I think, you know, every generation has to be careful that, it's not, that it, it is a product of the Word of God, not a product of its own culture. And so Wycliffe was just a product. He was born into this Chaucer-type England culture. He was raised in it. He knew no difference. And so for him to, to change and the radical change that took place in his life was nothing more than a, a work of God. And we ourselves, we need to be careful of the cultures that we are born into, even church cultures. Sometimes people can be born and brought up in a specific church culture and uh, they find it difficult to move out of that. They become traditional very, very quickly. So we have to ask ourselves today in Britain, uh, how much are we the product of a British culture that is moving away from the gospel? Because you don't even realize the cultural effects that are upon you unless you're alive to the word of God and, and the spirit of God. Now, what took place that, that really drove Wycliffe to consider spiritual matters was a huge plague that, um, called the Black Death that dominated Europe and hit Britain in 1348. And there's a plaque there behind me, and this is found in Weymouth, the Port Weymouth. And it says, the Black Death of England entered England in 30, 1348 through this port. It killed 30 to 50% of the country's total population. And 30% uh, is the least. It, it, it was probably more 50%. More and um, right across Europe, this, this was a terrible situation. A third, a third of the whole population of the Europe was wiped out in a matter of years. Imagine that. You know, every so often we get a bit worried, don't we, about things like bird flu or Ebola. And we think, you know, what, what could happen? And then you hear on the news, oh, what would happen if there was a major epidemic to hit the world? And people start saying, we need to contain this. We need to find vaccines and everything. Well, can, can you imagine today if a sickness or a plague hit Europe and one-third of the people in Europe died of it. It's hard, hard for us to even imagine, isn't it? I mean, we, we, can't, we, we find it hard to even imagine that such a thing could happen. Put your feet in the shoes of Wycliffe and those that are alive today. Large swellings would appear on the affected body. Soon the whole body would be covered with dark spots leading to death. Uh, nobody knew, knew how to deal with this medically. And uh, people were dropping like, literally like flies. And during the time of the Black Death, and there was a number of times it returned, um, they, they didn't have enough burial spots. They just used to dig big pits and, and put the bodies in. It was the only way that they could deal with them. And sometimes you hear in London or different places, when they're, when they're digging up an old building or they're putting foundations, they'll find one of these old Black Death graves with just, you know, tens and hundreds of people just put in it. I mean, it, it must have been like living in hell, mustn't it? People were dying so quickly, they couldn't keep up with burying them. 
the disease didn't only affect people, but livestock, dead animals lay everywhere in Britain unattended. And uh, where Wycliffe, Wycliffe was from in West Yorkshire, it was particularly bad. Not half, but two-thirds of the population died there. Two out of three people died in a matter of months and years. We've just got to step back and think about this, because sometimes when we talk about such things in history, it's like, can't even imagine, could that ever happen? And sometimes we think, you know, we have it difficult in today's life. Well, imagine being a, being a Christian in those days. Imagine facing death and, and, and knowing that there's a, if you're in Yorkshire, there's a, you know, out of every three people, two people are going to die. Two-thirds of you are going to die. What are your chances? And so this immediacy of life and death made everybody think about eternity even more than they did. Why? Because everybody was facing the question, what happens to you when you die, was being faced moment by moment. The question of, when you die, where are you going to go? It wasn't something, well, I hope I have a nice life, get married, have kids, get a career, uh, 80, 90, maybe even 100 lives. And, and, you know, I've got all my life planned out. It was like, you're probably not going to be here in a few minutes. And Wycliffe was appalled Stunned by this whole plague experience. I said it was like living on hell on earth. And the pain of the suffering of the plague drove him to the scriptures for answers. And as he began to study the Bible, um, not only only did did he begin to see the gospel and the good news, but he also began to think about the pain and suffering of eternal judgment. I mean, what they were experiencing in the villages and towns of Britain with all of these people dying and all of the suffering that was going on. And then he began to think, well, wait a second, when I read in the New Testament, I hear of all this suffering that will take place for those that don't go to heaven. The fires and the burning and the pain and the worm will never die. And he, and he read those scriptures on eternal punishment and he looked at that and he looked at the temporal sort of pains that people were going through, and all he could see was suffering. Suffering on earth, and then suffering for those that don't go to heaven. And he thought, well, how do I know that I'm going to go to heaven? And that was a huge question. I've already mentioned that, um, you know, we had these friars and these monks going around saying, you know, pay this money, do this act, do what you're told, and you'll go to heaven. People thought they got to heaven by doing good works. And, and constantly, they were like trying to make sure that their good works outweighed their bad works. And so if they had bad works, they had to go to the church and, and ask the church to forgive them. And, and the church would tell them to do certain things in order to get forgiven. And, and then they would do good works like pilgrimages to Canterbury. And, and, and would their good works be, what a terrible torment that people must have had. And um, he felt like he was hovering over hell in this situation that he was in. And um, I've got a quote here from J.A. Wiley, a, a historian. And as he began to see the gospel, it says, the joy of escape from a doom so terrible made him feel how small a matter is the life of the body and how little to be regarded are the torments which the tyrants of the earth have it in their power to inflict, compared with the wrath of the ever-living God. It's in these fires that the reformers have been hardened. It is in this school that they have learned to defy death and to sing at the stake. 
And this armor was Wycliffe clad before he was sent forth into the battle. In other, in other words, the fact that he escaped the plague brought a fearlessness in his life when it came to death. You know, when you've, I don't know if any of you have, when you've really faced death, I mean, really looked death in the face and come out the other side, you're different. Maybe some sickness or an illness or a situation or, or perhaps an accident or being saved from an accident. When you've looked death in the face and you've come away from it spared, you have a different view on life and your priorities can radically change when you realise how little time that you've got here. And so, having been spared death, Wycliffe believed that he was there for a destiny and that he had been spared to do God's will and that every day and every week that he lived was a bonus Today, people uh, almost expect God to give them a long life. And there is a, uh, more than ever in the church of, of the West today, there, there is such a heightened sense of expectation that God will give us everything that we want and do it our way. That's the word I'm looking for. Entitlement. Christians today have such a high sense of entitlement Entitlement. They think they're entitled to this and they're entitled to that from God. You're entitled to nothing from God. Think you're entitled to a long life. You're not entitled to anything. Every day you give is, is, is a fresh, every day God gives you is a fresh gift. Well, he wasn't like that. He began to read the scriptures, and the more he studied the scriptures and looked out at what was going on around him, the more that he realized that what he was reading in the Gospels and the book of Acts was very different to what he was seeing in Europe and England at that day. It was like two different worlds. And uh, when, when, when you think, if you were here last week, when we looked at Acts chapter 4 or earlier on in the year, when we looked at the, the, the revival community of Acts chapter 2 and how they, how they lived and how they, they, they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, how they broke bread from house to house, not on altars in cathedrals, and how they prayed and, in, and, and, and worshipped. And he read these things and he saw that this was totally different to the church that he had been involved in. The Holy Spirit was digging deep into his soul until he began to realise that something needed to be done. I've already mentioned that it's important to realise that in those days, religion and politics were not separated. You know, today... Religion and politics are separated, and, and, and if I can put it this way, Christianity and politics are increasingly separated, so much so that politics don't even want Christians to have a voice in it. So we're going from one extreme to another, and you see places like the United States where they don't want prayer in schools. Why? Because uh, they've decided that, that the state has got, had, has got to have no Christian influence at all. Well, in those days, it, it, was, it was almost the opposite. The church, i.e. the Roman Catholic Church, had, had not just religious authority, but was actually had incredible power politically over nations and kings. Why? Because people believed the Pope had the power to let you into heaven or shut you out of heaven. And so, we, if we go back 100 years ago, just to give you a, a bit of a flavour here, if you go back into the 1200s, there's a picture here of King John of England and, uh, and uh, what was happening during King John of England in 1200s is that the Pope was having more and more power over what was going on in England 
and also in Europe. And um, they didn't like it. A third, of, a third or more of England was in the hands of the Pope. Vast areas of lands held by the Pope and, um, uh, and, and, and the power. And, and what happened was is that King John decided that he would stand up with his barons, his, his, his princes, to Pope Innocent III and, um, and really tell Pope Innocent III you know, to, to leave them alone, that he, that, that he could be the Pope in religion, but he, the Pope was about to start saying who the next king was going to be. And so they argued over different things, and, um, and in the end, King John um, w- was uh, furious and was not doing what the Pope said. So guess what the Pope did? The Pope locked the whole of England out of heaven. That's what he did by an interdict. Which, uh, he locked, it was a holy law that locked the whole nation of England out of heaven and the kingdom of God. The Pope closed all churches to the English congregations. The dead were no longer to be buried in hallowed land. land on the church grounds, and people thought you'd go to hell if you weren't buried on a hallowed land, remember. Um, children were only allowed to be baptized on the steps of churches. And for two years, the English people lived in a state of superstitious fear and horror, of damnation and exclusion from God, because the Pope had excommunicated the whole lot. King, or, or, well, not excommunicated the whole lot, but had this interdict where he'd shut down the means of salvation. Remember, you couldn't say, oh, well, I... The churches, I mean, if we shut KT for health and safety and you turned up on a Sunday and we said, oh, KT's shut down and, you know, for health and safety, you wouldn't go, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to hell, would you? Because you believe in the Lord. But in these days, you could only get saved, stay saved, and have your sins forgiven through the Mass, through the church, through the priest's absolution, through the activities of the church. So when the church stopped doing this to people, you can imagine how they felt. They felt we're locked. And so um, the, picture, the picture behind me is this had, the Pope had so much power that in the end, King John, as you can, maybe can't, can't quite just see, went over to meet the Pope, and there he is handing his crown of England to the feet of, of, of the Pope, begging him, begging him to let him back into heaven and to let his nation once again go to heaven. So can you see there, there is King John of England and such religious power that they didn't know. When he, when he returned to England, his ruling baron and princes were furious. They felt betrayed. And, um, I, and I mention this because this, this year is the 800-year anniversary of what we call the Magna Carta. Has anybody heard anything about that? Just wave it. You've heard a little bit about that. Well, well, this was 100, this, this was 100 years or so before uh, Wycliffe came on the scene. And uh, I make reference to this because uh, this, this year is a big celebration of the Magna Carta. I won't go into it in detail. But the Magna Carta, people see that as the beginnings of... Um, of, of human rights, that it was one of the first documents of human rights ever to be produced. And so in it were, not many, but certain guarantees of the freedoms of the barons 
and English people against the king. So the famous habeas corpus was in, in that. And over the centuries, lawyers would go back to the Magna Carta. It changed over, oh, it would change and be developed. But in the 1700s, they would go back to the Magna Carta and say, that's where our freedom begins. That, that's how we use this against the tyranny of the king or, or anybody else. And so I just thought I'd mention that because it, it's the 800-year anniversary. But anyway, back to, back to Wycliffe. Things hadn't changed much by that, that time. And, um, and so Wycliffe felt that it was time to get back to the Bible, get back to the scriptures, and to rid them, rid England of this false doctrine. He, he said this, he said, already a third, and there's a quote here, already a third or more of England is in the hands of the Pope. There cannot be two temporal sovereigns or two kings on earth. Two temporal sovereigns in one country. Either Edward is king or Pope Urban is king. We make our choice. We accept Edward of England and refuse Urban of Rome. Wycliffe began to not only study the Bible, but he began to teach it. He began to teach Bible truths of being justified before God. He began to teach that you don't have to go to God through a priest. He began to teach against all the superstitions. And he was very popular in his teaching at Oxford University as he began now to teach his students on the word of God. But not only that, uh, got a picture of, of, of a monument in Lut Lutterworth of, um, of, and there he is, that, that is Wycliffe preaching. And what you've got in that picture is you, you have Wycliffe and behind him are some priests and they're not happy. They're not happy because Wycliffe is preaching the word of God to the common people, even to the children that are there. And so he's preaching the word to the people of England. And that's what he began to do. He would teach the students at Oxford, but also begin to teach in the churches in London. And people were amazed and stunned by his preaching, because there wasn't any preaching. There was these mad monks going around, telling you stories of how you'd burn if you didn't give them money and treat them properly. But he began to teach stories from Scripture, teachings of Christ, and began to preach the good news. And um, the bishops criticised Wycliffe's focus on Bible teaching at the expense of singing and chanting. And Wycliffe said, Christ did not teach his disciples to sing, but to preach the gospel. He felt strongly about the word of God. And, 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 and he said this, O marvellous power of the divine seed, which overpowers strong men in arms, soften hard hearts, and renews and changes into divine men, men who had been brutalized by sins and departed infinitely far from God. He saw that the power wasn't in priestcraft or superstition. He saw that the power was in the preached word of God. Now, now this was not happening in Europe at this time. It, again, it's hard for us to think back and realize people were not going around preaching the good news preaching from the Bible or teaching from the Bible. And uh, this had a tremendous impact on the population. People began to say to the clergy, why aren't you teaching us about what's in the Bible? Why aren't you telling us about these stories? Why aren't you teaching us about the gospel and forgiveness of sins? And so as he raised up many young university preachers and educated men who began to, to, to hold the church to the light of the scripture and hold it accountable to scriptural truths. But also, not only did Wycliffe raise up intelligent men in Oxford 
and other places to, to, to study the scriptures and to hold the church and the bishops accountable to scriptural authority. But he also uh, developed a training ground for popular evangelists, next slide, known as Wycliffe's Bible Men, or also the Lollards. And this Lollard is a very important word in, in, in our history for a group, a group of people. I'll come to that. Now, what did he do? Well, this is why where, where, where we found him in Lutterworth, Junction 20 on the M1. Uh, he began to have what we'd call today, I suppose, a Bible school. And he was training up, not, not now the Oxford students, but he was training up anybody that wanted to learn the Word of God. These men were often called the poor priests. They weren't priests, but they were called the poor priests because in reaction to these wandering friars and local priests who constantly sought money from the peasants, Wycliffe uh, sent out these men, these apostolic men, without fear of, 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 without fear, he trained them in the basic scriptures and they wore a uniform of simple brown robes. I think you can see that. With very large pockets. Why? To carry portions of scriptures around with them. They'd take them with them. And they would publicly read the scriptures in English. And they wore no shoes. They carried a large staff. And Wycliffe pr produced many sermon outlines for them to preach as they went from village to village and house to house and pub to pub preaching the gospel. Uh, and, and, and people were getting saved and listening to this, and common, normal people were being revolutionized. So from Lutteroth, he sent his evangelists out over all Britain. And, um, and, and he said, this is where the power was. Wycliffe, although he was very clever and academic studied, he actually said, look, he said, he said, an unlearned man with God's grace does more for the church than many graduates. Scholastic studies breed rather than destroy heresies. Let the faithful man discover what knowledge helps most to a virtuous life and label hard to, get, to, to grasp it. So he was teaching people plain truth and sending them out. And, and of course the church was furious. Uh, one bishop said this, they went all over England seducing nobles and great lords. Their number very much increased and that starting like saplings from the root of a tree, they multiplied and filled every place of the compass of the land to bring over to their great sect a great number of people. Uh, he said, like their master, they too were elegant, eloquent, that mighty in words, they exceeded all men in making speeches. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, you see. Both men and women, though even recently converted to this sect, were distinguished by some modes of speech and a wonderful agreement to the same opinions. Every second man you met was a lollard. These are the Bible men. Now, when they preached up and down the country, people were getting saved. The common people were turning to God in their masses. Every second man, they said, was a lollard. Now, the lollards, the word lollard, we believe, comes from a German word, lollen, which means to sing with a low voice. And they had to sing with a low voice because of the persecution that came upon many of these lollards. And they weren't allowed to meet in the churches, obviously. They didn't have churches. Uh, they'd found the gospel. They were like the Christians in Acts chapter 2 and 4. And they would go deep into the forests where they could worship God themselves quietly without being discovered or perse persecuted. These lollards who were Bible men, they, they, they read the word, they studied the word. 
They had no priests. They, they were centered around the word of God and prayer. They had been finally freed from false doctrines and superstitions and um, preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel. It, it, was, it was a powerful move of God. And Wycliffe's attack on superstition was at first very much supported by the nobles, but mainly because they saw that they could get money back from the church. And so they thought, ah, we'll use this great evangelical preacher. And he was the first person to use the phrase evangelical Wycliffe. We'll use him and his doctrine in order to attack the church and give us nobles more power. The Pope was receiving five times more tax from England than the king himself. So we've already <laughs> we, we've seen that. So we're, we're getting behind Wycliffe, these uh, nobles drew up bills against Pope's ta taxes, stating... God has given his sheep to the Pope to be pastored, not shorn and shaven. And so Wycliffe was seen for a time as the great saviour of Britain against the Pope. But with many of the nobles, it, it was only a, to use him for political means. Now, what was happening amongst the common of the people, common, uh, people was, was so powerful that um, out of this, people up and down the world who had been treated as nothing, hardly human beings by both the nobles and the church, began to realize that they were, they were the dignity of God, the image of God. They were reading the Bible and they were seeing that Jesus went to the poor people. He went to people just like them and he was just like them. He was a carpenter. And so the gospel dignifies and shows you your true worth to God. And so peasants began to say, wait a second, you know, we should be treated with dignity. We're human beings. Look what the New Testament teaches about God's love for us, uh, and, 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 and what happened in 1381 was something called the Peasants' Revolt. An army of peasants marched on London with a series of complaints. High taxes, forced labour on church lands, and, and, and the lords treating them so terribly. They came to meet the king, to petition him. They weren't out to have a war, but they said, this isn't right. We know who we are now. And, uh, and we want to go to the king, King Richard II. And he met with them, and he was quite frightened at the time because there were so many of them, and he agreed to their demands. And then later, when he got stronger, uh, he didn't do anything that he'd promised. But the nobles were astonished by the show of people power. This one is, was one of the first human rights marches that ever took place, if not the first. And although Wycliffe wasn't involved in it, his gospel was. Because it had turned these serfs, these nothing more than slaves who were nobodies, who, who were just subjugated by noblemen, it had allowed them to, to, to gain some sort of personal dignity that they would even go to the king and ask the king to, 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 to look at their dignity and, 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 their, and their message. Well, the, the last great act of... Um, Wycliffe, was his Bible translation. He was the first person to translate the Bible into the English language, which he did, finally finished in 1382. There was a law against doing what he did. There was a law that you could not translate the Bible into the vernacular or the normal language of the people, but Wycliffe just did it anyway. And so, of course, in those days, you see, you're seeing a printed version of the Wycliffe Bible behind me, but in, in, that, the printing press only came in the 1500s in the Reformation. 
So when Wycliffe uh, wrote his Bible, it was then constantly being copied out by people. And, um, and, and hundreds were handwritten and portions of Scripture were, were copied and copied. And, and again, this fueled the Word of God uh, and the lollards uh, up and down the country. They were expensive to produce. I don't know how much you've ever paid for a Bible. But imagine that if you wanted a New Testament, it would cost you six months of your wages. Six months' salary of, of, the, of a normal salary. Six months' salary for a New Testament loan. you know what? People wanted it. People were so starved of the Word of God and saw the effects of it in such a liberating way, both knowing that they were going to heaven by grace alone, knowing that the word of God had dignified and freedom, and that the gospel was good news, that, that to get hold of, of even a portion of the scripture, it was, it was like gold dust. One farmer even gave a wagon load of hay in exchange for just a few chapters from the new Bible. The breakthrough was amazing. People could have access now directly to the scriptures. You say, well, not many people read. No, but they would have readings, secret readings. They'd go into the village and say, hey, have you ever heard of the Gospel of Mark? No? Would you like me to read it to you? And for the first time, they would hear in their own language the Gospel. It makes you think, doesn't it, how, um, how we should treasure our Bible. I think if I had a teaching service at five o'clock in the 1300s, I think we probably have thousands in this place. In fact, I wouldn't even have to teach. If I just said in the 1300s at Kensington Temple, we're going to have a public reading. I'm just going to read from the Gospels. The place would be absolutely cram-packed. If we were giving out New Testaments, there would be a riot to get hold of them. But people knew that, that, this, that, that although their, their, their life was jeopardized by believing in this, and reading this, remember, they, well, they, they knew what life was. Life was like the plague that took 50% of the people in the nation. They needed something more secure. They needed something that was r- more real than their temporary life on earth. And, and the gospel had, had everything. So John Wycliffe died in th- 1384, and he'd had a tremendous impact on the nation. The Lollards were very strong. And just outside London, actually, in Buckinghamshire, there was a very, very strong, because um, he, he did a lot of work out there towards Oxford. Very, very strong Lollards. And these Lollards were before any Baptists, before the Re- Reformation, before any of these things took place, before there was a Martin Luther, before there was such a thing as a Protestant. These Lollards were meeting and preaching and praising. And um, it's interesting how you can see, um, because a couple of hundred years later, when the Reformation came to England, there was already fertile ground. They'd already got a Bible translated. They'd already had the teaching of Wycliffe. They'd already had these Bible men and these Lollards passing this down generation to generation. In fact, I remember uh, on an anecdote, and I'll finish on this, that I'm from the north of England myself, Harrogate, and educated in Durham. And up there in the north, one of the things that I noticed was the amount of Methodist churches that there were there and the amount of primitive Methodists. And we'll speak about both those revivals next month. And uh, in most villages in the northeast, uh, you could find these Methodists or primitive Methodist chapels. And, uh, and that was a mark of the revival and the move of Methodists very strong in that area. And so when I came down, and I lived just outside London in Buckinghamshire, 
just near, uh, and just near a place called Amersham. And when I went down there, what, what, what I noticed going from village to village was all the Baptist churches, sometimes two or three Baptist churches, and not many Methodist churches at all, and I noticed that. And so I began to dig into like, the history of Buckinghamshire, and it, what was and, and is, in a sense, a, a Bible Belt of Britain. Uh, it's been called the Bible Belt of Britain out there. And I thought, well, where does all this come from? Well, it comes from Wycliffe. What he did in the 1300s remained and was built on century by century so that I could come down and say, why are all these Baptist churches here? Some of those ancient Baptist churches were based on the Lollards. And then yesterday, I went for a little walk with my daughter into Amersham, and then I see a sign, and it is commemorating um, the martyrdom of Lollards in the 1500s. That's 200 years later, and they were still there. And they were martyred and set on fire for their, for their faith. And you can go on a martyr's walk. And I'm going to find out a little bit more about that. I'm thinking, isn't that amazing that this work in the 1300s, and think about that, the 1300s, and there are still marks of it around today, still in people's local remembrance, paved the ground for a strong move of God in the whole of Britain and in certain areas where Lollardy, the Lollards were strong, that they're even strong there today, centuries later, a Baptist stronghold down there in some of these places, Baptist churches, all that. And that teaches us, you know, what we do in our generation is not just for our generation. That's why we benefit from the past. We're encouraged by what, what we hear. Uh, we're not as bad in Great Britain yet as we were in the 1300s, which mean, and we have far more Bibles and far more scriptures and far more knowledge than, than they had. And we can turn things around and, and why not? And, and, and here we are celebrating 100 years of, of Pentecostal ministry in the Elim movement. Who's to say that we can't be a generation, maybe in Kensington Temple, play our part, that the vision that God gives us of radical discipleship and small groups and city-taking and, and, and maybe, maybe this vision, maybe we are the pioneers of something new and maybe in 100 or 200 or 300 years, cell groups will be all over the nation, people meeting in houses like they did in, in, in the book of Acts, people going on encounters left, right and centre, people being trained on school of leaders in their various forms across, across Europe. Maybe we're the start of some sort of reformation uh, move. Not, not us alone, of course, but playing our part with other streams that God is, is bringing together. And there's been some strong prophecies by credible people that God does want to bring a reformation back to Europe. But in order for there to be the reformation back to Europe, there has to be a reformation type of people, doesn't there? And that's why I think that when Colin is speaking about the fact that there is the next move of God that we're already in is a, a, a deep move in the hearts of people. That's why things like those that are on Tuesday evenings doing soul talk, why it's, it's deep calling to deep. God has to go deeper in us and deeper in our relationships if we're going to have a harvest that will not only bring in a new reformation, but will stay. We can't have a shallow people doing a great work. We'll just produce shallow people, won't we? But God is at work in our lives and doing a deep work in our lives so that we can have a great, be part of a great move of God of deep people that will carry the torch. Wonderful. Well, we'll move on to the next part of our revival service next uh, Sunday at five o'clock. God bless you. Get uh, three pounds.
and you can get the book as well if you, if you want to in, in the bookstore.